This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, April 27th, 2022. I'm Kyle Callums. And I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. This is KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. This hour, I'll talk with Jill Antonowitz about her reporting for the Arkansas Traveler on eating disorders. The CDC reports the pandemic led to an increase in disordered eating. And later, Kyle talks with the reporter and writer Keith O'Brien about his new book, Paradise Falls, The True Story of an Environmental Catastrophe. He'll discuss the book about the Love Canal disaster at the Bentonville Public Library Saturday morning. We start this Wednesday with a partnership announced this week designed to create a regional health system in northwest Arkansas to provide more medical care and professionals to residents. The Alice L. Walton Foundation and Washington Regional Medical System are teaming up to create the regional health system. This week's announcement comes after a similar announcement that the Alice L. Walton Foundation and the Cleveland Clinic are working together to bring services from that clinic to northwest Arkansas. The collaborations are expected to expand services and a response to a study commissioned by the Northwest Arkansas Council that many people and billions of health care dollars leave the region for medical treatment. Yesterday, we called Larry Shackelford, the president and CEO of the Washington Regional Medical System, and asked him about the partnership and what it can mean for Northwest Arkansas. Our population has grown so fast. Uh, I think sometimes we don't think about healthcare as being infrastructure, but but that rate of growth has has led to where we definitely have some some access challenges. So uh, a, a part of of our plans is going to be able to uh, take scale to work with Cleveland Clinic and to create opportunities for Northwest Arkansans to not to be able to obtain care close to home. Uh, and we think there's also an opportunity to uh, change what's been an out migration to, to an in migration of those from living outside of Northwest Arkansas coming here for care. And I know that, you know, this is great for residents of Northwest Arkansas who would seek health care and help. But I guess this is also great for health professionals. It absolutely is. Um, you know, our uh, this is so consistent with what Washington Regional's uh, mission and and vision is. You know, our our mission is to improve the health of those that we serve, and, and we meet that that mission through the vision of being the best place to receive care and the best place to to give care. So as as we think about what are some of the objectives as we develop this this health system, we know that training, uh, we have aspirations to become the teaching hospital to really develop an academic health system. And uh, right now in Arkansas, there are medical students when they finish medical school that need to have residency training before they can actually practice. And often those uh, folks are required to leave Arkansas to, to get that training. So one of the things our new partnership will create is training opportunities for that to, to happen here in Northwest Arkansas. And we really like the odds if someone moves to Northwest Arkansas, remains here and does their training. When they finish that training, they they will stay here and and work, which is which is an 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 awesome thing. I you know I know that I don't know if this is still the case. I know a few years ago we were in Northwest Arkansas growing by I don't know 29, 30 people a day roughly, and I know right. the growth is continuing. Whether it's that many people a day, I don't know, but I know that we're still growing rapidly. And this is a great concept, but it's also, as for a rapidly growing region, a necessity, really, isn't it? Absolutely, it is. Um, and, you know, just as as we've had to grow other infrastructure that includes roads and highways and Access to water and air airports. Growing the healthcare infrastructure is something that's that that's that's really important. And a, as you say, it, it was really striking when the uh, Arkansas Census data came out last year, 
and and our area was growing uh, at a rate that was in that 24, 25% range compared to the rest of the state, which grew 3.3% in that time frame. So being able to, to manage that growth, be able to uh, bring the, the, the kinds of, of infrastructure here to, to support that, that's, it is important now and I think going to be even, even more important as, as we continue to grow. Can this be something that is not just, you know, for lack of a better term, treatment, health treatment, but also preventative and wellness uh, sort of health care? Absolutely. You don't have to spend very much time with Ms. Walton uh, to understand the passion that she has for transforming healthcare. Uh, our, our system coming out of, of a pandemic where we're paid on a fee-for-service basis sometimes is focused on what's wrong with you today and, and how can we fix that. And, and a part of this transformation is focused on the whole person. What are your lifetime health goals? How can we design your plan of care around keeping you well? And if, if we can change what that health care delivery model looks like, if at the same time we can look at how we're financing and paying for health care, from we'll not pay you to do more health care, but we'll pay you to to keep people well and accomplish those health goals. We, we think that is going to improve patient engagement. We think that will improve patient outcomes. And I think we all know that the rate of cost increase in, in our country for health care is something we can't sustain moving forward. So that that entire focus on the the whole person is is something we're we're excited to be able to work with Ms. Walton with the the Whole Health Institute and and taking those ideals and principles and putting those in practice. When when we hear Cleveland Clinic, we think Ohio, obviously, but I know that Cleveland Clinic has has operations in Canada, I think Nevada and Florida and London. So it it might seem counterintuitive when you first hear that Cleveland Clinic and Northwest Arkansas are working, get, working together to make a regional system. But the bigger picture, it, it's kind of part of their mission as well. Absolutely it is. You know, they are are known for very patient-centric care. Uh, world-class care. Um, I, I think they're too really excited about this system transformation to focus on on whole person. It's also, I think, a very neat opportunity with with the large employers that are not only based uh, across our, our country but but I- internationally. And this gives us an opportunity to be able to develop some of the these new healthcare delivery models, healthcare financing models, and for them to scale that and to take that to to other markets. So, you know, we we really feel like a, a, a strong partnership is one in which everybody brings attributes, and together the team is even more more powerful than than on their own. Larry Shackelford is president and CEO of the Washington Regional Medical System. We discussed the partnership between the system and the Alice L. Walton Foundation that was announced this week by phone yesterday. Exacerbated by the pandemic, weekly emergency room visits for eating disorders among teenage girls doubled over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic, according to CDC information. Rachel Sanchez-Smith, how'd you find out about this story? I actually picked up the latest print edition of the Arkansas Traveler, for those who say print is dead. And on the front page was a headline about the CDC report and the increase in the prevalence of eating disorders and how the pandemic played into those figures. And I knew I had to check it out. All right. Besides the headline, what stuck out to you? I mean, two sentences into the article, obviously reading the statistics about emergency room visitors doubling, but also that the National Eating Disorder Association recorded a 58 percent increase in calls, texts and chats to its hotline 
in the first year of the pandemic. Those were some shocking statistics, and I think the article did a wonderful job of putting life and telling a story from the data. The Arkansas Traveler staff reporter and University of Arkansas sophomore Jill Antonowitz tells us how she found the article and about her reporting process for a difficult story. I initially found the CDC report on a New York Times article that they actually did about it. And I wanted to write about it just because I think it's something that it's something that I personally had experience with. And I wanted to, like, talk to professionals about it, but also talk to, like, other students who also, like, went through the same thing during the pandemic. Um, Just because I couldn't, like, obviously really write about my own experience. And I also just wanted to, like, share the experiences of others because I think it's It's not something that's talked about that much, and I think it's important to talk about it just to, like, let people, other people know that other people are going through the same things that they are. What were some of the big takeaways, either from the statistics or from things you found out from your sources that, you know, kind of drop your jaw? Something that, well, like, the CDC report was primarily, like, young women were, like, the ones that were, like, a rise in hospitalizations during the pandemic. But um, one of my sources um, said that actually 10% of patients are male. It's not something that just affects women, which, I mean, I knew that, but it's like, you, you just wouldn't really think, you would you think that eating disorders, you would think that's something that primarily affects women, which it does, but it's also important to, like, recognize that it also affects males. And also, both of my sources, Ashley um, O'Rourke um, at the Riverstone Wellness Center and Keena Redden at the um, Center for Eating Disorders and Behavioral Wellness, they both like said that they wanted it to be known that it's a common misconception that you know people with eating disorders are like visibly ill or thin. Yes. Um, but that's obviously not always the case, and it's important to not overlook someone or, like, think that they're not struggling or say something potentially triggering just because you think that they wouldn't be suffering from an eating disorder just because they don't, you wouldn't think they look like they have one. I'm curious how the pandemic and virtual learning kind of played into all of this issue. Um, I think a big thing is isolation, and that's what people said, Um, but also just like people who are still in school, like kids in schools, when they're doing virtual learning, it's not like they don't have like a lunch break or like if they're starting school later just because they're like whatever, their their schedule is different with virtual learning, they might not be eating breakfast or might not be doing sports if they would usually like eat dinner after going to sports practices and stuff. Like everything is just kind of thrown out of whack with virtual learning and just stuff being online in general. And one of my sources, one of the students I interviewed said that something that I didn't even think of, but like um, when things are like more shut down, like she said she would usually like go to lunch with people and stuff. And that like that structure was like a big thing for her, like her recovery process, being able to like schedule lunches and stuff with people was a big thing that helped her. And then with COVID, obviously, that wasn't really happening as much. And was it difficult to find sources who were transparent about their struggles with an eating disorder? I actually had a couple people reach out to me, which I wasn't really expecting just because it's like, like I said, it's not something people talk about a lot. But one of my sources, um, Toby Klein, she was great. She was very transparent about everything that she struggled with and just how the pandemic has worsened it and also Lily Martin was another source of mine and she was she was great just about how the pandemic has just added a lot of added stress and anxiety and that contributed to I imagine I mean what was the process like in those conversations because I especially with mental health or anything that's kind of touchy or you know traumatic in some capacity it's hard to, you know, right out of the get-go, tell me about the deepest or some of, you know, the darkest things you face. Mm-hmm. How did you approach those conversations? Um, I kind of just started by saying, tell me anything that you feel comfortable with saying, because I didn't really want to ask, just, like, really pointed questions. So I just wanted to, like, open it up, just whatever you want to say or whatever you think is 
relevant to what I want to talk about in my story. And they were great about it. They obviously said whatever they were comfortable with, and I just went with that. And, I mean, one of the the quotes really, really stuck out to me. You know, we're doing a good job about self-care and that kind of thing, but when it comes to, to school, how am I, how is my, how can my work be good if I'm active, actively trying to stay out of the hospital? Right. That just, that hits home. That's mm-hmm. hard. I'm wondering if the sources, you know, who do have an eating disorder afflicted in some manner, did they feel like they had access to help? Um, that there was maybe a stigma around getting help? Um, Toby said that, especially with the pandemic, she didn't really know if she could even receive adequate help just because stuff was shut down and, like, a lot of places weren't, like, taking new patients and whatnot. Um, And just, like, being in college, she's a graduate student, so that's um, even more, like, added stress and pressure and just not wanting to seek help just because of, like, the stuff you have to do at school. It makes it, like, more difficult. You have stuff you need to be doing. And a lot of times she said, like, professors or advisors wouldn't be understanding of it necessarily. I spoke to Traveler staff reporter Jill Antonowitz Monday in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. If you or someone you know is in crisis and need help immediately, you can contact the National Eating Disorder Organization and text NEDA to 741-741. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. Scott Family Amazium offers summer camp experiences for children 6 to 11 years old. This playful learning explores STEAM concepts through interactive activities. Select camps are available at the Jones Center in Springdale. Amazium.org for more information. In the 1970s, a suburban neighborhood in Niagara Falls, New York, became national news. Decades previously, Hooker Chemical had filled a canal, locally called Love Canal, with toxic waste. As the city grew, homes, an elementary school, and a playground were built near the site. Children became sick and residents, many of them women, fought for justice. In his new book, Paradise Falls, The True Story of an Environmental Catastrophe, Keith O'Brien writes about the people affected by Love Canal. O'Brien has reported for NPR, The New York Times, and The Washington Post. He'll discuss his book Saturday morning at 11 at the Bentonville Public Library. We talked to him yesterday, and he told us the infamous Love Canal had been on the edge of town in the middle of the 20th century. And this canal had been attempted to be built decades earlier by a man named William T. Love, thus the Love Canal. And in the 40s and 50s, uh, one of the largest employers in the city of Niagara Falls, a company called Hooker Chemical, uh, began to use this old canal as a dumping ground for its uh, uh, chemical wastes and residues. And in about a decade's time, Hooker uh, put in the, into the canal about 21,000 tons of, of these uh, chemical wastes and residues. And then uh, in the 1950s, um, uh, the city of Niagara Falls, the Board of Education, approached Hooker with an offer. Um, the city was growing, as many cities were in the post-war years, and uh, the population was pushing further east toward the edge of town, toward that old canal. And the wanted to acquire this land to use as a land uh, as a school um, and you know initially hooker was resistant to the idea uh, for all the obvious reasons uh, but over the course of many months in 1952 and 53 um, hooker came around on the idea um, as they said in some internal documents uh, the love canal property is rapidly becoming a liability And so despite the company's misgivings, despite the company's warnings at times, uh, they did transfer the property to the Board of Education Niagara Falls for a dollar. And and up went a school and around it grew a neighborhood, a uh, a working class neighborhood of of starter homes. Uh, These were ranches, uh, single story ranchers, Uh, about a thousand families uh, would move in into this neighborhood in, in the next two decades to come. 
residents would begin smelling a chemical stench. There's there's uh, anecdotes or, or or experiences of rocks on the playground bursting into flames. People, children begin to get sick, and that's when people begin to think, what's going on, right? That's correct. You know, the, the problems begin in this neighborhood almost immediately. Um, there are all kinds of little issues that happen, you know, including those rocks that, that uh, you know, would, would catch on fire, which, by the way, those weren't rocks. They were just lumps of congealed chemical waste. And, um, but it's not until the 1970s that these sort of secrets begin to seep out in a way that people living closest to this old canal, now a, a school and a playground, um, these secrets start to seep out in ways that people can't ignore. And, and it, it really begins uh, in, in late 76 and certainly the spring of 77 after the snow melt of the blizzard of 77, um, it, it, the old canal begins to operate almost like a bathtub at this point uh, with, the, with the water overflowing and whatever was in it starting to seep out in the closest yards and homes and basements. You mentioned that there are characters, there are members of Congress, a president, uh, administrators with the EPA who are characters in this his- historical drama. But it's really the residents and, for lack of a better term, the regular people of this neighborhood that begin to get attention and to make sure something restitution happens. Yeah, that's right, Kyle. And, you know, that that's the whole purpose of my book and the whole uh, the whole reason why I wrote it. I, in this book, in Paradise Falls, I am attempting to capture the human drama here. And, and so, you know, this is, you know, a human narrative, a story of people, um, you know, in their homes, in their kitchens, you know, uh, learning of problems and then fighting effectively to escape those homes over the course of two years. And, you know, it is a, a, a sweeping tale that will go all the way to the White House and all the way to the Oval Office uh, with, with Jimmy Carter. But it really is the story of, of a handful of folks who were primarily mothers who, who learned about what was happening in their neighborhood, uh, were stuck there, and then did everything they could do to escape. Yeah, it's an interesting account of both trying to make officials from local level all the way up understand, become accountable. But it's also a story about reaching out to the media and making this eventually a national story. That's right. And and one of the people who who does that most of all is a woman named Lois Gibbs. Uh, Lois was 26 years old in 1977. She was a mother of two kids who were uh, about uh, six and two years old. And uh, she was at the time what we would have called a a housewife. She she was a stay-at-home mom. And Lois Gibbs was not, you know, active. She was, you know, uh, not uh, an activist in any way. Um, In fact, Lois had barely graduated from high school and was very self-conscious of that. She, she worried that she wasn't smart enough even to like speak up at the PTA meetings. Um, but when Lois's son, uh, who was previously healthy, begins to suffer from seizures, and then she begins to read in the local newspapers small stories at first uh, that uh, authorities are beginning to investigate buried chemicals beneath the school in the heart of her neighborhood, the school that her son attends kindergarten in. Uh, Lois uh, does become angry, and she does engage in this, in this fight, and she begins to go door to door in her neighborhood, gathering signatures uh, on a petition that she has written to, to shut down the school, at least until they can learn more. And, and Lois is stunned in August 1978, when not only do state health officials in Albany, New York, declare that they're going to close that school for now, but they're also going to recommend evacuation and then order evacuation for uh, uh, roughly 200 families living closest 
to this school and, and playground, you know, once uh, a canal and, and, and chemical landfill. But Lois's house, like 700 other houses, are, is just outside that evacuation zone. And, and it is Lois Gibbs really more than any other uh, person who will really lead this fight to, to escape the homes there in the neighborhood and will push this fight all the way uh, to, the, to the doorstep of the White House in Washington, D.C. And the reason we know the term Superfund site now is because of the action that she and other residents uh, take on. Indeed, this story will change uh, U.S. environmental policy forever and, and really will spark the modern environmental movement. And it, and it leads directly to the, to the Superfund legislation that many people will know. Um, you know, as, as Lois Gibbs and others in her neighborhood are, are fighting to escape their homes, uh, administrators at the EPA in Washington begin to build legislation for uh, a large fund of money. Uh, some began to call it a super fund that would give the EPA authority and also funding from the polluters themselves, from industry, to come in and clean up these kind of sites. And so Love Canal effectively is is the first super fund site and, and the reason uh, why that legislation was ever born in the first place. Keith O'Brien's book is Paradise Falls, The True Story of an Environmental Catastrophe. He'll discuss the book at the Bentonville Public Library Saturday morning at 11. The event is free and open to public. More at bentonvillelibrary.org. Support for KUAF comes from Westwood Gardens, a family-owned garden center with four locations in northwest Arkansas. Westwood plants are grown locally and offer a variety of annuals and perennials, herbs, vegetables, and more. Westwoodgardens.com for information. The UAMS Mindfulness Program is guided meditations and courses for beginners and experienced meditators that can bring ease and resilience to those dealing with worry and stress. Help is available at uams.info forward slash meditation. This is Ozarks at Large. If you're familiar at all with the West African nation of Liberia, perhaps you know it as a nation founded as a place for formerly enslaved African Americans to return back to Africa following the American Civil War. However, Liberia became home for many Caribbean migrants, as well as people from nations like Barbados and Trinidad. In the latest episode of Undisciplined, we hear from Lorenzo Witherspoon. Witherspoon is an ambassador from Liberia, working alongside Nelson Mandela, the World Health Organization, and as a podcast host, Karee Banton describes him an international renaissance man. We jump into the conversation with Dr. Banton, asking Ambassador Witherspoon about returning to generational homelands. Tell me, what was that feeling like? Because I know, for me, the first time uh, I went to uh, study in Africa in 2011, I was so elated, you know. I was telling my family, I don't know what I should do to commemorate going to Africa. I should eat some dirt. I should become one with the continent. Maybe I should eat some grass, you know. I When I landed at Kotoka Airport, I was just like, I cannot believe I am here. So I'm wondering for you, the experience of that reverse migration to the Caribbean, what, what was that like? How did it feel? And what was your experience? First of all, when the plane landed, as soon as we came out of the plane, rather, I knew I was home because the place was as hot as Liberia. (laughs) (laughs) Walking from the plane to the terminal, and uh, of course it was COVID time, so one had to be very careful. But the thoughts just kept going through my mind. Gosh, you know, it's been 150 years since my forebears left. Nobody in my family has ever succeeded in coming back here. I'm the first as the fifth generation, the oldest child in the fifth generation. I'm the first of all generations to ever come here. You know, so I felt I was carrying a huge burden. And then when we went up to Irish town, Matt Riley took me out there, which is where, according to the records we have so far, is where my great great grand uncle was last known to have lived and worked, uh, which was after 1833 and before coming to to Liberia. 
And we walked through, of course, it, the place is, uh, is uh, it doesn't exist anymore because of, you know, what has happened over the years. A lot of, you know, uh, nature has taken its course. But we walked through the beach. We spent about an hour and a half there, Rodney, Matt, and I, going as high up as we could go. And looking at the old farm implements, they're still there. And the, the shuttle houses, they're still there. I just, I couldn't help myself. I just broke down because I could see my great, great grand uncle walking up and down that hill, maybe taking some of those implements, uh, putting some sugar cane in this thing to uh, get the, uh, the the juice out, the cane juice. I mean, it just brought everything full circle. Looking at the creeks and imagining them washing clothes there at the water at the creek, you know, mm-hmm. because of course that's the only place grew, and bathing. I, I could almost feel the, the tears they were crying, the suffering they were enduring, you know, during that period. And I said, no, this is this is just, you know, I, I have never, I think it's the first time I really came to understood, you know, what being enslaved meant as a slave, really working for someone, you know, uh, getting paid nothing, uh, 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 zero wages, you know. For me, that was the highlight of the trip, going to that place, Irish town, uh, and then going later on the, below Cliff uh, in St. John. And that was in St. Thomas. That's where, uh, that's the last place we found. And that's where he's known to have met uh, uh, his wife, my great-great-grandmother, who was Elizabeth. Now, she, that era was the poor whites, you know, we believe... Right. She was a, an, an Irish redleg, you know, right. because in our family, we have a lot of people who are almost white. And we, we don't know what, what her origin may have been. We haven't found anything about her in the records. So uh, that's something that we hope there will be in those in those books. Because, again, in those journals, like the prime minister said, there are a lot of wills and stuff in there. And the slave owners' wills would be their slaves are part of their, their estate. So those names might be there or what have you, you know, but that's why we need to get those records preserved, deciphered and, and docu- uh, documented uh, and preserved, not only ourselves, but for, for posterity, for people, who, historians, people who want to know about where the people came from, what they went through, who they were. And then we went around, drove across around the entire island. You know, actually, we did it twice. And the landscape, everything is so much like Liberia. So much like I felt so much at home. In fact, we were mm. talking about looking into perhaps buying something there. Just a small little place, you know, that we'll have go because I intend to be going back on a regular basis, you know, especially now that I'm retired. I'll be retired soon, rather, to build a connection there. And going through the different areas, seeing all the different people, you were calling me, oh, look for the Goodriches, look for the Morris, look for this. You know, I said, look, guys, this isn't as simple as you think, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Everybody wants you to go take a picture by where their family house used to be. But since I went, the interest now in Barbados is so heightened. In fact, one of the things I'm trying to do, Karee, is to plan a big migration back sometime next year. Good. Maybe second or third quarter, maybe more towards the third quarter. And that's a lot of people all over uh, the diaspora, Liberians and Ghanaians and Nigerians that want to go right. back. It justified everything that we have been doing, going back yeah. there. And of course, having the opportunity to uh, be receiving audience by the prime minister and uh, uh, us talking about the things we talked about and planning to do some of the things we plan to do. Yeah, that's what's going to be my next question to you. Um, you already mentioned in terms of what's next of not only Liberians of Barbadian heritage, but um, Nigerians, Ghanaians. We know that in 2019 was the big year of return and uh, Ghana had a big celebration. I was so jealous. Everybody was over there in the shikis and kinti cloth and everything. I was like, Ah, man. Uh, so you're thinking about a similar thing for for Africans who have uh, ancestry um, to trace back to Barbados and so on to make that journey. And uh, you're saying that you've had these talks with Prime Minister Mia Motley. And just recently in November here, Barbados became a republic and big plans are underway. Could you talk about that a little bit? The, the Prime Minister liked the idea very much and she asked us to uh, offer our support and 
I think what has happened is that they have even uh, taken that to another level. And I'm not taking any credit for that. But uh, one of the things they announced during the Republican uh, the transition to a Republicanism uh, in November was a uh, creation of the Heritage District, which, uh-huh. as you know, by uh, Daniel Ajay, the uh, eminent architect of Ghanaian I don't know why they say they said uh, British Ghanaian ancestry. It's not it's not Ghanaian British, you know. He's British now, but he's Ghanaian. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, uh, he's been contracted to do the uh, the, the Heritage District, and uh, alongside that, we will be doing our our work with to help with the uh, fundraising. So we're going to be involved in that in uh, trying to uh, find the financing for it. I have pitched it to so many people and so many people, I get calls every day, people, so what are the plans? What are the months? When are we going, you know, and people that want to go. Good thing is when I met with the prime minister, she asked me, she says, you know what will be good? It will be good because the diaspora Bayesians, they know more about Barbados than Barbadians know about Africa. (laughs) It will be good. And it's true. And it's sad, but it's true. In fact, that's one of the, I, I don't want to talk about the experience that I had while I was there, but I found that black Bajans didn't really have an interest in their African ancestry from talking to people largely. You know, I mean, when I say people, I don't, I mean, lay people. And you found, I found a Jamaican brother there. Uh, he was a musician. He was saying, man, I want to get out of this country and go back where I came from. You know, so <laughs> those kind of people, you know, but that's, that's uh, you know, a uh, uh, needle in the haystack kind of situation. So there are many people out here. So she, she asked me, if you can arrange to bring Africans here with have a Bajan uh, 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 ancestry, the government will provide everything that they need to have a, uh, we have uh, ancestry tracing, of course. Now I, I don't know how much we can do of that because that this thing is just starting. But to make government will make available facilities for them to really, really get into the country and see around and organize activities and all that kind of stuff. We figure maybe about a week. Then she says, but that wouldn't be. We shouldn't stop there because I also want Bajans to go to Africa, so they can right. really see and they can really feel why they think the way they do. And why they look the way they do, and why they act the way they do. They have to know the history. You just heard a portion of the latest episode of Undisciplined. It's out today. Undisciplined is a podcast in collaboration with Ozarks at Large, KUAF, and the African and African American Studies Program at the University of Arkansas. It's hosted by Dr. Karee Banton and produced by our very own Matthew Moore. More than 80,000 people were in Reynolds Razorback Stadium this past Saturday to see country stars Garth Brooks and Trisha Yearwood. The Razorback football field has not always been able to host a top-tier concert. Charlie Allison, the executive editor of University Relations, tells us more as a part of his continuing examination of University of Arkansas history. The best-known structure on the University of Arkansas campus, across the state maybe, and across the nation most assuredly, is not Old Main. It's probably the Donald W. Reynolds Razorback Stadium, home of the university's football team. Now, Razorback Stadium was not its original name, nor was it the first place that the football team played on campus. The earliest intercollegiate football games appear to have occurred in 1894, not long after a new athletic association had been created on campus. During the early years, the football matches were played on the front lawn of Old Main near the northeast corner of campus before Carnell Hall was built. In 1902, though, the Board of Trustees requested that all the agricultural buildings be moved west of Garland Avenue so that a proper field could be graded. It ran east-west and lay about where the Fine Arts Center is today. It doubled as a baseball field, and I once calculated that the pitching mound would be about where the left side of the university's theater's orchestra pit is today. A wooden grandstand was erected for spectators, and a fence was eventually built to try to keep gawkers from gawking, uh, or at least to keep them from gawking without buying a ticket. The first hog call was heard at this field, probably in the late teens, and the first homecoming game was played in 1922. Halftimes were filled with comical freshman parades and greased pig chases. In 1925, a campus design known as the 100-Year Plan was created by an architectural firm in St. Louis, and it identified the natural bowl of the valley to the west of the main campus as an ideal spot for a football stadium. They even drew a horseshoe-shaped stadium into their plans with an open southern end. 
A drive was started to raise $150,000 to build that new stadium, but it proved unsuccessful. The stadium up on the hill was reworked into a north-south field and steel bleachers capable of seating 3,000 fans were installed on the west side. The stock market crash and subsequent depression put a halt to thoughts of a new stadium for the next decade. In 1936, though, the Federal Public Works Administration approved a couple of grants for the university, including one to construct a new stadium in that bowl of land. The valley, now referred to as the Athletic Valley, was part of the 160 acres purchased from the William McElroy family for the beginning of the university in 1871. The valley comprised 90 acres running from Cleveland Street on the north to Martin Luther King Boulevard on the south. Historian Don Schaefer wrote that it had been described as, quote, a pretty little valley, a typical Ozark hollow. However, it had never been considered useful to the university because it was a rock-strewn gully of rabbits, weeds, and grass. Two civil engineering students, Lee Fraser and Harley Walker, began making a survey of the possible building site and drawing plans on behalf of the university's Department of Buildings and Grounds. They drew a topographic map showing the elevation changes, and they determined the cuts and fills needed for making the valley fit the stadium. The first construction work on the stadium, and really the most important engineering work for that early version of the stadium, consisted of transforming the bottom of the valley from a creek bed into a quarter-mile-long central culvert, running from the north side of Maple Street to the south side of the present-day stadium. Connected to it were other arterial box culverts and drains underneath the field to help it drain quickly during rainstorms. In addition to the football field, a traditional quarter-mile cinder track encircled the playing field to host track and field events. By October of 1937, concrete was being poured to form the seats and stands. The natural amphitheater shape of the valley did not quite form a perfect bowl for the stands, but fill dirt on the east side and around the north end zone did the trick. The south end of the bowl was left open, partly for surface drainage, but more importantly to fans, it afforded a breathtaking view of the Boston Mountains rising to the south. The first game in the new stadium was played September 24, 1938. Arkansas defeated Oklahoma A&M, that's, that's present-day Oklahoma State, by a score of 27-7. to The stadium was dedicated two weeks later with a person no less important than Harry Hopkins as the principal speaker. Hopkins was the top administrator of the Federal Works Progress Administration, the right-hand man to President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the person literally digging America out of the Depression. Hopkins, who had surely heard jokes about WPA workers, told the crowd, quote, This stadium was not built by a group of men leaning on shovels. At that, about 200 WPA workers who had been admitted free stood up and cheered loudly. The morning after the dedication, the Board of Trustees met and voted to name the new athletic arena Bailey Stadium in honor of Governor Carl Bailey, a strong supporter of the university. It didn't hurt that it was Governor Bailey's birthday, either. <laughs> Politics is a fickle business, though. Two years later, Homer Adkins defeated Carl Bailey for Arkansas governor. Adkins soon gained control of the university's board of trustees, engineered the firing of the university president, J. William Fulbright, and then had the board rename Bailey Stadium as Razorback Stadium. Now, I won't wade too far into the politics of this, but I have to say that the name Razorback Stadium does seem a mite better. Enlargements of the stadium occurred in 1947, 1950, and 1964. In 1969, just in time for the biggest event in the stadium's history, AstroTurf was installed. Arkansas and Texas met in a football battle that became known as the Game of the Century. By late in the season, Texas was ranked number one in the nation and Arkansas was ranked number two. President Richard M. Nixon flew in for the game with a gaggle of Arkansas and Texas politicians in tow, Congressman John Paul Hammerschmidt and George H.W. Bush before he was president, Senators J. William Fulbright and John McClellan, Arkansas Governor Winthrop Rockefeller, and University President David Mullins. Arkansas, unfortunately, lost the game 15-14. to So the great shootout also became known as the most ignominious game of the century, at least as far as Razorback fans were concerned. Expansions resumed with the North End Zone Complex in 1975, skyboxes in 1984, a major renovation in 1999, and a complete overhaul of the North End Zone in 2018 to add club suites and lounges. A relatively amazing part of that decades-long expansion is that no taxes or tuition money was used to pay for it. The athletic department has been self-supporting for at least 40 years and probably more like 50 the budget for the athletic program comes from ticket sales, television rights, gifts by donors, and licensing rights for Razorback memorabilia. 
The building itself, though, is hardly what anyone cares about. What matters is the spectacle, the shared experience, the sound of the Arkansas fight song reverberating across the open air, the players running out of the tunnel and through the enormous letter A spelled out on the field by the Razorback marching band, cheerleaders yelling through megaphones and flying through the air, Tusk snorting in his big cage, the student section in the southeast corner giving rival teams the what for, the smell of hot dogs with mustard and relish in a row ahead of you, and then a couple rows back, an unmistakable aroma of something verboten from a flask smuggled into the stadium. (laughs) I recall being 14 years old and watching a game from the wooden bleachers pegged into the grassy hillside of the north end zone. I was sitting next to the prettiest girl in junior high. She had asked to share my rain poncho because the skies were darkening to the southwest. I said, sure. Rain poured out of the heavens for the next three quarters of the game. I was soaked, but I didn't care. And what was the score at the end of that game? I don't recall caring about that either. Go Hogs! Charlie Allison is the executive editor of University Relations for the University of Arkansas. Tomorrow on Ozarks, Timothy Dennis gives us as much live music information as time will allow. But he says there's no way we can have a complete rundown. There's just so much music happening across the region. So we're just getting a small head start on today's show. Friday night, the Teen Audio Group will hold their first ever CD release party at Fairlane Station in downtown Springdale. The CD is part of the project of the Teen in Action Support Center, or TASC. Last week, we asked one of the musicians on the new CD, Sal, to come to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio to tell us more about the record. With Sal was one of the mentors for the project, KUAF's own Jasper Logan. Jasper says he and Sal first met during a workshop called Ground Waves, sponsored by the Creative Arkansas Community Hub and Exchange. That session matched the musical artist MERS with teens. After Ground Waves ended, I uh, got contracted to co-manage the studio at Task, and like part of that insi- uh, consisted of like doing these workshops as well as like, uh, well, I wanted to do these workshops as well as like get some students together and create an album. And he was one of those students that like stuck around through all the workshops and was like ready to like make an album. So, so um, what, what kept you there? What kept you sticking around? Um, I had been at Task previously for about, man, four or three years. That was the place that got me through high school, those horrible days. Um, what stuck me is just the, the atmosphere that it brought, the, the feeling of being comfortable never seems to go away at that location, no matter who goes and stays. Um, mm. I haven't even been making music probably since like at least a year and a half ago. Um, but I had been at the station. I know there's a studio. I heard all these people, uh, South Village, um, Jasper, a good friend of uh, our solo. Mm-hmm. Um, fantastic person. But what kept me there was just it made me want to be, be creative, I guess you could say. And um, nothing I enjoy more than using my brain or my hands. So I got to make things. I got to think with my head for once and have very controversial conversations with people that are way older than me. <laughs> but um, A safe place. I mean, yes. Let's talk about the album. What did you have to do to get there and know that it was ready to go? We literally just finished. <laughs> we barely, yeah, we barely just yeah. finished. You know, it's so like we we spent uh, all semester. So like we started in like January, and then we had like a few days. And he was he he was great. So like he put in his own extra time, like outside of like the designated time that we had for like students to like. All right, here's where we're working when and where we're working on an album. He would come to the studio like outside of those times just on his own and like do stuff on his own, record, like try to make beats, like everything. Um, and so like he's going to be carrying the bulk of the <laughs> the bulk of the album <laughs> and uh, and the bulk of the uh, the show next week. Um, but like everything that went to, into it was just uh, like the whole process. So kind of how we structured the workshops is the same way as how we structured the the uh, the album. So we had a pr- music producer. So how we structured the workshops, we had workshops on uh, music production. We had workshops on songwriting. Then we had workshops on graphic design. So we took all of those skills that we had learned and we just put them towards this album. We partnered with one of the uh, producers who uh, led one of the workshops uh, and he helped produce like 
80, 90% of the album. So, Sal, you said that like a year and a half ago, you weren't thinking you would be a musician. Not at all. So what's it like to have an album coming to, to have a show? Oh, man, it's a fantastic feeling. Um, I like to take advantage of every possibility I can get when it comes to like, performing in person and all sorts of that stuff. Um, making an album was fantastic experience. Um, a year and a half ago, I didn't. I was a kid on the beach in Florida, you know, with the moon, you know, just absolutely beaming on me with all that light. And, you know, with someone that I previously was acquainted with, which her name is Coco. Um, her artist name is Pura Coco. Oh, man, my big sister. Um, she kind of made me start making music. I always thought to myself, well, what would it sound like if I made a song with her? Mm. And that's what kind of started it. And to be able to make an album and being able to perform for people in my city, Springdale, was a fantastic feeling, I got to say. Is it easier sometimes to say something through a song or music than just talking? Definitely. When you have <laughs> instruments in the background, it kind of drowns out like, oh, I'm not just talking. I always tell people, you know, it's always so much easier just to you know, make music. It helps get those feelings out instead of just saying it. You know, it's kind of therapy, I guess you could say. Um, but yeah. Jasper, working as a mentor or a guide, can that be inspiring for your music? Yeah, it's the whole reason why I do it. Like, <laughs> it's the, like, it's like the main, like one of the bulk of the reasons why I do it. Like the inspiration that like I get from like what they say and like the things that they draw from make me go, yo, I never thought about it. He one, he had one a line in a song where he, do you remember that line where you said, where it was about like you were in the backseat of a car like with a girl and it was like. Um, with the sun in the backseat in silence, our love needs no translation. That one? Yeah, but like, but you, but you went on to say like something, uh, something to the effect of like, I may not ever be with this person again. But yeah. like you said it in a different kind of way. Yeah, it was um the the verse itself was um um face to face uh with the sun in the back sitting in silence our love needs no translation. This is all preparation for our separation caused by our life occupation. Yeah, that wow. and I, exactly. That's wow. why I was like, whoa, like yo, like <laughs> he's 18, like <laughs> yeah, that perspective, like yeah. So like that's the like one of the main reasons like that perspective is like I mean, as you do things and as you grow like you get you can get caught up in like your own pattern and your own way of doing things. And so like it's great to like have that like fresh of like no, nah, you could do it like this or you could say it like this and like, oh yeah. Jasper Logan and Sal came to the Carver Center for Public Radio last week. The CD release party and concert is Friday night at the Fairlane Station in Springdale. Doors are open at 6 o'clock, and the music is scheduled to start at 7 o'clock. The show is free and open to the public. Walton Arts Center presents the 2022 Artisphere, Arkansas's Arts and Nature Festival, May 4th through the 27th, welcoming artists from around the world with performances, activities, and events at locations across northwest Arkansas, featuring the return of the Artisphere Festival Orchestra, Trail Mix, and more. Tickets and event lineup at artisphereFestival.org. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Goodman, Missouri. Timothy Dennis produced today's show. Contributors included Cree Banton and Charlie Allison. Matthew Moore produces the podcast Undisciplined. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. From the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville, I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. I'm Kyle Kellums. Thanks so much for being with us. We will be with you tomorrow with a brand new show at noon and 7 p.m. Don't forget, you can always listen to us on your schedule. We have a free daily podcast version of Ozarks at Large. It's available through all podcast distributors. You can also ask your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large and hear the most recent daily edition of our show. Please take care of yourself. We'll talk again very soon. Have a great rest of your Wednesday.